Welcome to the Redeemer Central podcast. Redeemer Central is a church community in Belfast seeking to practice the way of Jesus and work for the peace and good of our city. For more information, please visit RedeemerCentral.com. We're in a, a series at the moment, uh, as many of you will know, called What Kind of Church, which is just really like an overview, kind of big picture idea of what kind of community we are seeking to become, um, what we feel called to. And we're actually in our fifth week of this. I think next week is the last, and uh, Steph's going to be sharing on us being a grace-saturated church. Today is a kingdom-oriented church. And some of you will hear, we've heard, weaved a lot of this in over the last year or so, um, but it's really good to kind of anchor ourselves in these values and uh, as we begin another season of church life. Um, the stuff that you hear when you're growing up, I've talked about this before here, um, you ever heard about, if you cross your eyes for long enough, they'll stay that way, um, or if you stare at the TV too long, you'll get square eyes, you've heard that kind of stuff, or if you eat too many sweets, you'll turn into one. Or I heard one, like, if you eat, eat a lot of carrots, you'll be able to see in the dark. Yeah. Um, anyone play the lava game when you're a kid, when, like, the floor is lava and the only safe place in the living room is the sofa? Hands up, anyone do that? <laughs> um, or one where, uh, apparently, there's a person inside the ATM that pushes the money through the slot. I, I, I tell you, I've heard somebody who genuinely believed that that was what was going on in ATMs. Um, uh, I heard this week someone say that uh, they were brought up that when the ice cream truck ha- played its song, it meant that it was all out of ice cream, <laughs> which was a really, it's a parenting hack right there. Take note, parenting hack. Um, or another one was if you, you know, if you swallow chewing gum, it stays inside you for like seven years. Remember that one? Apparently it's only a month at most. Um, here's another one that adults have the world figured out. <laughs> Anyone believe that when they were a kid? And find out that that's not true either. We believe all sorts of things growing up. Um, some of them totally false. Um, and some of them obviously just picked up half-truths and all of that kind of thing. I don't know about you. We've talked about this before here many times. We as leadership have been brought up here in, in Northern Ireland, going to church from young ages. Um, many of us in this room have had that experience and figuring out what it means to be a Christian and having that understanding of the gospel presented to us, that it's a magical sky fairy who is going to save us and take us to a different place when we die, and it's all good. And that's essentially the gospel, completely boiled down and reduced to that kind of story, all about the afterlife, all about the golden ticket in your pocket, all about the Willy Wonka gospel, going to this, 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 this castle in the sky when you die. That was the story I was told, and I think many of us will be familiar with that story because it was the version of the gospel that was presented a lot in this country over the last number of decades. I know driving around the streets in Newtonards and Bangor um, growing up, there's all these little like verses uh, on rocks and trees. If you look out for them, they're just there talking about eternal life and things like that. Um, it's kind of in the culture. You walk into the city center, and I've talked to before about the bullhorn guy on the soapbox preaching the gospel. Always a guy, never a woman, of course, preaching the gospel about hell and damnation. That's kind of the story. We've heard that before. We, 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 we get brought up believing um, and being told stories. 
Um, and as I get older, I suppose I realized that when you watch TV, your, your eyes didn't turn square and that, um, yeah, a lot of the things I talked about before weren't true. And you understand that God loved the world and yet that story that was displayed on trees and rocks and on angry men on soapboxes also wasn't true either. It was a, f- a false gospel, a reduced gospel, a very limited, small story. And the question I asked was, what about the rest of the world? What about Greece? What about the refugees there? What about all of the inequality in this world? What about all of the problems of this world? What about all the people groups of this world? Does God love them? And the story I was brought up and many of you were brought up with too didn't really sound like good news. It didn't really sound like a very big story at all. It sounded like a very small story, a limited story, a story that felt more like algebra, like this plus this equals this, done, move on with your lives. And yet, I guess we're trying to figure out what, what it really means. What is in this book? What is the story that we're part of? What is the truth? What did Jesus come to do? We're going to talk about that this morning. That street street preacher story didn't really seem to have much to say about this world here and now. Uh, Obsessed with saving souls um, and trying to bring everyone to like a nirvana like heaven after they die, but neglecting the hell right in front of us here and now. Evacuation theology. Um, for what it's worth for people who care just this week, my parents were clearing out the attic and they found like a whole series of left behind books. Does anyone know what that is? Um, and they asked me, what do, you, what do you want to do with these books? And without a hesitation, I was like, trash them. <laughs> it's garbage theology, sorry to say it, but I'm going to put myself out there. It's garbage theology. Um, and those novels are not based on anything that uh, we believe is in the scriptures. What is the story that we believe? I have to say about injustice, about poverty and illness and disease and viruses which cause global pandemics and inequality, income inequality, violence, abuse, countries at war, race relations, strife. What does this story have to say about our bodies and our sexuality and our livelihoods and our relationships and our environment and our world? What? Where's the peace in all this? Where's the wholeness? Where's the good news? And the other thing that contributed, contributed to my confusion growing up was that I did actually begin to read the Bible, as many of you have, and actually begun to think that Jesus has some things to say about the poor and about this world. And I looked more closely at that, and <clears throat> Jesus really was he was really passionate about this life here and now, and he spoke not so much. Don't get me wrong, it's really, really important to kind of get right with the Lord. And, you know, the only thing I know about the end times is that Jesus is going to make it all new. I'm going to talk about that later. But Jesus didn't seem to really think about that or talk about that very much. He seemed to be more concerned with what's going on here and now. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Over and over in the Bible, you read Jesus preaching about this thing called the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God seems to be much less interested in getting us into heaven as, as much as it is about getting heaven into us. Much less interested about taking us to a different place there, but bringing a little bit of there here. 
something about this place that seems to be plan A. We see it in Matthew 4. Jesus began to preach and he says, repent for the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is near. We have this word for gospel. Um, it's like a military word, evangelion or euangelion. It actually means good news or good announcement. It's essentially, as I say, a military word that was used to announce when a new king was establishing his victory or his reign in a town or a city. We've actually been singing about Jesus as king this morning in some of those songs that Fran Lucas led us in. We believe Jesus is king. There's a king in the kingdom. And this is what gives us shape as a community here. We really care about the kingdom and we're seeking as best we can, filled with the spirit, to see it come here on earth. There's a passage in Isaiah 61 that talks about this, a picture, a vision from the prophet Isaiah. And Jesus, in Luke chapter 4, he draws from this passage. You want to move on to the Luke 4 passage, Pete? Um, Jesus, in this passage, returns to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about him had spread throughout the whole countryside. And he was teaching in the synagogues and everyone praised him. And he went to Nazareth, his hometown, where he'd been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he stood up and he took the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, which was handed to him, and he unrolled it. And he found the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus is pulling forward into the now, that promise in the prophetic word from Isaiah. And he's making a bold statement because he's declaring that he is that person, that the spirit of the Lord is upon him. Jesus is making a statement in his hometown that in him, this thing called the kingdom of God is coming. It's coming in and through a person. And Jesus got ran out of town for this. If you read on in the passage, he got ran out of town because the hearers of the word didn't like what he was saying. Perhaps the word heretic was used in that moment. He was ran out of town. These words and this idea was nothing less than a wholesale revolution. The Greek word evangelion used in the New Testament, as I say, literally means good news. It was code for your king has come. There's a royal announcement about kingship, and it implied this, a word that is kind of contested or leaves us uncomfortable times, but I think is actually at the very, very heart of what it means to be a Christian. It's allegiance, and it's a, it's a contested word, a difficult word in this country, to pledge allegiance. And as Christians, we pledge allegiance to one king. King Jesus. There's no kingdom without a king, <clears throat> and we pledge allegiance. And to pledge allegiance to a new king and to that king's rule, it implied that we would embody the culture of that king, that we would bring into this world the ways of that king. And it's the same with the way Jesus was using these words in this language. The Apostle Paul, he goes on to talk about it as well, not to merely believe the gospel, but to actually become it, to embody it. And in so doing, we actually participate in the divine life when we do it. Scott McKnight, in his book, The, Jesus, the King Jesus Gospel, challenges why he believes 
an evangelical reductionistic approach, the simple, small, limited gospel today, the story of getting into heaven when we die. He challenges it and he says, a salvation only approach with redemption and Jesus as a means of that redemption rather than Jesus as the subject of the whole big story. In other words, we kind of make Jesus, the focus is Jesus is my savior, but Jesus is not my Lord. He's not my king. And we are called to replace allegiance in Jesus. Scott McKnight says, Christology comes first. And soteriology, as in the saving of us, comes, it flows out of that. But we pledge allegiance first. We bow down at the feet of Jesus and the kingdom that he is bringing. It's what it means to be a Christian. And that actually is the apostolic order, for those who want to dig into that. Jesus is Lord and he is Messiah and he is the fulfillment of the story. That's the gospel. He is not simply a golden ticket to a different place to get us out of our problems. He has come to reorder this world. He is the cosmic Lord of the universe. He is the one in Colossians that says his very word sustains and upholds the cosmos. In him and through him, we have our being. The Evangelion, the good news, the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus lived and preached is not a privatized, even individualistic salvation but it is the redemption and the restoration of the cosmos. And it really, really matters to you and your work and your family and your story right now because it's the story we live in and it gives us hope and calls us to a purpose. The story of God has everything to do with everything. Everything matters. The story of shalom, as we've called it here before, the very good gospel, the story of everything in the world made right. Everything that's wrong, right. When 15-year-old girls are killed by machete in the streets in England, that's wrong. Not in the kingdom of God. And the million other stories that are filling the columns of newspapers and our social media every single day. The gospel has something to say about that, not just about the place we go when we die. I've talked about this before, and it's a bit cliche, but I think it still matters. And for those who haven't kind of seen it, I'm going to put it up very quickly. Pete, this kintsugi bowl is representative of, I think, what the gospel is all about. Many of you have seen it. The Japanese art that says nothing should be thrown away. Everything broken can be restored. And you see the broken pieces of this bowl have been tenderly and artistically and creatively put together with gold leaf. And it's an original bowl made of broken pieces. That is the gospel, that God is making us broken people whole and in that unique and giving us dignity and honoring us. That is what it means to talk about this kingdom of God, the gospel of shalom, the good news of God's healing and restoration. And I offer it today as a picture of what God can do and wants to do in your life to make you whole to bring shalom to your workplace, to your family, to your relationships, to your inner world. He wants to bring peace to your mind, to the voices in your head. He wants to bring peace to your body when it's complicated, when we have a relationship with our body that's complicated. He wants to bring peace to every facet of our lives. This is the big grand story. I get pumped up about it. I'm excited about it. The God story is a good story. It's an expansive story. It's a grand story. 
and we can be secure in it. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I love this story that we are part of. And I began to realize as I got older that this kingdom of God was not this disembodied bliss in the sky, in heaven, the platonic heaven, but it was actually God's rearrangement of society, every way in which we would love society to be, even the ways that we're blind to. Because even we're biased and blind. God's ways are good and whole. And this is the vision of the kingdom. This is the vision of the gospel that we have here in Redeemer. The politics of Jesus, the ethic of Jesus, the way of Jesus, that Jesus came to show us, to inaugurate. Another word that you use for kings, to inaugurate. To become a new way of being human, whole, healed and flourishing in a world that is just, that is good, that is fair, that is right, that is peaceful, that is harmonious, where shalom is restored. Very different ideas, perhaps, to those views that we had growing up. So this is what it means to be a kingdom-oriented church, to have that kind of vision that's informing all that we do. We've been looking this month about the values that make us Redeemer. A Jesus-centered church was week one. We, everything we do is through Jesus. He is the lens through which we see everything. He is the image of the divine in the world. Week two, the ancient future church, that the future is actually through the past, that there's things that we can learn. We don't make this up. This is a story that we receive, and it informs how we then live into the future. Stephanie shared about what it means for us to be embodied in this world as God's family, to be a family together and building one another up and serving one another and being there for one another and loving one another as siblings in God's family. And last week we talked about being a spirit-filled church, people that are called to be mystics, those that want to taste and see that God is good, the experience of God, not just some kind of belief in our head, but like a tangible experience and relationship with God in the spirit and his presence. So to be a kingdom-oriented church just builds upon this and turns out that it's really, really good news. It's really good news, and it has something to say about how we live. To be a Christian, to be a Jesus-centered Christian, tethered to the past, living into the future, as part of a family, as brothers and sisters in Christ, spirit-filled, means that you then participate in this thing called the kingdom of God. It's not an optional thing. This is what we strive to do by the power of God. And it's not small and limited, as I've said, but it is exciting. We don't privatize it. We don't shrink it. We declare it. And we live into it. The verse that I love, I think, that I'll talk about later, Revelation 21, Jesus describes the renewal of all things, the world as it should be. That's our guiding light. We follow Jesus into that. To be a Christian means to belong to a kingdom community. So the church is a kingdom community that has Jesus as king at the center of it. That's who we are as a church. You know my boy Brian Zahn that I love, he helps to shape a lot of my theology as I continue to learn, says this about the kingdom. What does the kingdom of God look like? It looks like Jesus. 
It looks like the sick being healed, the poor being fed, the demonized being delivered, and the dead being raised. It looks like outsiders given a seat at the table and hypocritical gatekeepers given their comeuppance. It looks like forgiveness for sinners and a feast for all. If you can embrace the newness, it looks like a party where water turns to wine. If you resist the newness, it looks like judgment day where the whip comes down and the tables are flipped. As Oregon of Alexandria said, Jesus is the kingdom in person. So if it doesn't look like Jesus, it's not the kingdom of God. And if it's not the kingdom of God, we must never pledge our ultimate allegiance to it. At times we love our theology and our teaching and our quotes. You know, we spend 30, 35 minutes a week, whatever it is, probably more. You can check it on the podcast, how long I go on for today. But here's one thing. If you just take one thing away, I want to make this as simple as possible without being reductionistic. If it doesn't look like Jesus, it ain't the gospel. It ain't the kingdom of God. That is the framework through which we want to live out as a church in this world. This new world that God is making within the old here and now is a world put right, a kingdom that cannot be shaken, a place where righteousness and justice roll like a mighty river where the first are last and the last are first, where the poor and the marginalized and the downcast are liberated, where the economy is upside down, where joy is in the giving, not the receiving, where we are called to pursue radical enemy love, to turn our cheek where faith as small as a mustard seed can topple an empire. This is a world where neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free is the definition by which we are. A world of goodness, peace and justice where all nations are gathered around the throne, the lion and the lamb not at war. The lion and the lamb lying together and the kingdom of God is here if we have eyes to see it where you see something looking like that, looking like Jesus, you can say, I can see the kingdom of God. It's kind of here. There's a mystery to that. It's here in the midst of this old world, but it is here. It's the place where the poor are blessed instead of the rich, where the brokenhearted are comforted instead of those happy to be on top. It's where the meek get their share even though they never fought for it. It's where, the hun- it's, it's where those who are hungry for justice are finally satisfied. It's where mercy triumphs over judgment. It's where the pure-hearted see what the cynical never see, that God is actually with us. It's a place where the children of God are making peace and undoing the works of the enemy. It's where the children of God who are being persecuted are making peace. It's where the Jesus way is replacing the way of empire building and war making. We talk about this every Easter when we declare Christ is risen. He is the risen king. Can I get an amen? He is the risen king, the first fruits of the kingdom of God breaking in when Christ rose from the dead. The rule and the reign of God has begun. And it continues through every church in every nation. A new family of God. A new family. An emergence of a new way of being human in the midst of the old. A family of brothers and sisters in Jesus' name. And this new family worshipping King Jesus. The defiant, subversive rebellion 
against the principalities and powers, as Paul would call it, the principalities and powers of this world. We have our identity and our feet firmly on the ground of Jesus. And even when empire is all around us, when the world seems so big and intimidating, we know Jesus, King Jesus, who holds it all in his hands. The kingdom of God is a place where we reject the systems of the world that seek to divide us, define us, or exploit us, or commodify our value and our worth. It's a world, the world is a system of diminishment. It diminishes the God-given flame that burns in each human being. It tarnishes the image of God. It shatters and fractures the beauty and the dignity of every human being that has been ascribed by the creator God. And to be a Christian means to participate against that for the kingdom of God to restore that in every human soul. In the midst of an old broken creation, the unjust systems of suspicion, division, and oppression in the light of the resurrected Christ, a new community of strangers can be formed. A family of strangers united in love and hope with a practice every day, with an aim every day to practice resurrection in our towns and in our cities, to bring good news, justice, and beauty. More and more and more. N.C. Wright, who I highly commend to you, says this, New Testament scholar, and I'd really recommend his book, Surprised by Hope, if you want to read more about all of the stuff we're talking about this morning, that Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of God's new project, not to snatch people away from earth to heaven, but to colonize earth with the life of heaven. That, after all, is what the, the Lord's Prayer is all about. So how do we do this is the question that I'm, I'm left with. How do we begin to do this? Because I'm kind of buzzing off all that. It's great. There's a bit of theology there, a bit of framing. I want to just give four practical ways. I guess they're practical. You can kind of work out the application of them. But I think these are practical enough for me anyway. <laughs> I think we can bring the kingdom of God when we work for the common good. I think that means loving our neighbors. In Jeremiah 29, verse 7, it says this, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord in its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. I believe to bring the kingdom of God to Belfast, to our, to our towns and our cities, begins simply like this, to love your enemies and to work for the common good. There's a verse in Matthew 5, we all know it as Christians, you're to be salt and light. The salt of the earth, if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything. But then you're the light of the world, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all that is in the house. And in the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The salt is reminiscent of this idea of people being in exile, being good residents embodied. It's, it's like when you bake bread 
you can't get the eggs back out of it. It's kind of you can't separate the constituent parts again. It is baked in. There's like it's the same image I guess as yeast. The salt is just kind of it's there. It's in it. It's embedded. It's part of the culture, part of the families, part of the homes, part of the relationships, part of the community, and yet it's providing something distinct. It gives a taste of something a little different, enhances the flavor. That's what it means about building homes, planting gardens, and working for the flourishing of Babylon. It's the same for us, that we should work for the flourishing of Belfast. And then opposed to that, you have a very different image, not from salt, but then of light. Light is the opposite of that. You can see a light. It's on a, in a particular place, shining in the darkness, which speaks not of being a part of the culture, but of being apart from the culture. The light shines as a prophetic voice to say, no, that's not right. I don't believe that that should be the way that we should organize our society or do things. This is not right. Calling out injustice. We are called to be both salt and light, a part of this world, and then apart from it. This is what it means to work for the peace and common good, to love our neighbors. Here's the second way that I think that we can be a kingdom-oriented church, and it is to do with justice. And I don't need to preach long about justice in this room because I know there's a room full of people that have hearts that burn for justice to come. This is this idea I've been talking about all morning, about putting all things right. And in Revelation 21, there's this beautiful passage that says, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear away from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. So in simple ways as a community, we're just trying to do our part in that. When we welcome the stranger to our table, when we deliver food to those who need it through farm box, when we lay a table here on a Friday night for people who have no place to call home or haven't had a warm meal for a few days, when we open the space up for parents and tots to feel safe on a Monday morning, when we give generously and practice hospitality, embrace those that are rejected and take into our homes, those that have fled war-torn countries, when we adopt and foster kids who have nowhere to call home, all of these things and a million different things are ways in which we pursue justice. In the power of the Spirit, we name and we shame the injustices that are still rampant. There's many of them. Environmental justice that we want to pursue, equality, the gap in gender, justice in terms of racial justice, the violence in the world, justice in terms of that. A million different ways in which we want to pursue justice for the sake of our city. And injustice is rooted out far and wide when there are churches following King Jesus. I believe that. And only if we're doing this will it make any sense to even preach and teach about this thing that we're talking about today when we actually embody it and live it out. The putting right of creation. Tom Wright in that book again says this, people who believe in the resurrection 
in God making a whole new world in which everything will be set right at last are unstoppably motivated to work for that new world in the present. Everything you do matters here and now. Common good, loving our neighbors. Number two, justice, putting things right, putting things wrong right. Number three, stewardship. Here's one, Christian stewardship. Here's a way in which we can be a justice-oriented people. Refers to the responsibility that we have to steward well everything that we've been given. Not just pursuing the things that have been taken from us, but actually having eyes to see we are all endowed with something that God has given us. Gifts and resources. And we're called to steward those wisely. And even call it out of one another in a loving way to say, you've got that. Run with it. To be collaborators in the creation and to be participants in this great redemption. We're to be good stewards of that which we have. So there's a question to you. What's in your hand? What is in your hand? What can you do for the Lord? That's what I love about that passage in Jeremiah. It says, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. There's a sense of... Here's our, here's our ground. We've been given this and we're going to build on it and we're going to cultivate and we're going to generate and we're going to wisely steward the things we've been given. There's an artist that I really love called Makoto Fujimura and in his book Culture Care he says this, effective stewardship leads to generative work and a generative culture. We turn wheat into bread and bread into community. We turn grapes into wine and wine into occasions for joyful camaraderie, convivility, conversation, and creativity. We turn minerals into paints and paints into works that lift the heart or stir the spirit. We turn ideas and experiences into imaginative worlds for sheer enjoyment and to expand the scope of our empathy. I think Makoto is making stewardship sound amazing. As a steward of the resources God has given you and me and us, we can manage them to make this world a better world, providing for others. And fourth and finally, alongside that, creativity, cultivating beauty and imagination. I believe we can be a kingdom-oriented church when we get creative, beauty will save the world is a, a sentence that I love, a theology that I believe in. If we believe that God has made this world a beautiful world and it has been spoiled in so many ways, well, what resonates more powerfully than when we pursue beauty? And if Jesus has done the most beautiful thing that has ever been done to lay down his life, how much more should we pursue beauty in this world? world? Why else would so many artists and musicians devote their best efforts throughout the centuries to contemplate in awe that story? It's the most painted, celebrated, written about, sung about event in history. Artists have been inspired by it for years, and yet I believe that anything that has the name Christian before it is just turning something into a commodity. The only thing that you can put Christian before is a person. There's no such thing as Christian art. No such thing as, there's just art. There's no such thing as Christian art. 
There's Christians. There's no such thing as Christian art, Christian movies, Christian... Everything in the cosmos belongs to God and we should celebrate it all. If it causes you to wonder and to contemplate, it is good. And so I want to call the artists in this community, but not just the artists, all of us can be creative in our work. We can practice resurrection through our creativity. We can, yes, give and celebrate Give space and celebrate the artistic gifts of many of us in this community. I would call you to get creative, to be creative, to continue that work in this world because our world is ugly and it needs beauty. It needs artists to show the beauty that is already here. It needs artists to tell a different story. I love a couple of quotes. I'm going to just throw them in here from my friend Makoto because I think he speaks about this so beautifully. Our failure is not that we choose heaven over earth. It is that we fail to see the divine in the earth. I think that's what artists do well. They help us see what is right in front of us. Already active and working, pouring forth grace and spilling glory into our lives. Artists, whether they are professed believers or not, tap into the grace and glory. There is a terrible beauty operating throughout creation. If Christ announced his post-resurrection reality into the darkness, even into hell, as the Bible and Christian catechism suggests, then as theologian Abraham Kuyper puts it, there's not one inch of earth that Christ does not call mine. That's another way to say what I said a moment ago, that all art is holy and divine and inspiring. There's no such thing as Christian this and then secular that, that every inch of this cosmos belongs to the Lord. And there is glory and beauty in all of it. And it is up to us as Christians to shine the light on that beauty and on that glory. Because many of us have forgotten that it's actually right there in front of us. And Makoto goes on to say, in my experience, when we surrender to all, all to the greatest artists, artist, that artist fills us with the spirit and makes us even more creative and aware of the greater reality all about us. By giving up our art, we are paradoxically made into true artists of the kingdom. This is the paradox Blake was addressing, that's in our previous quote, unless we make makers in the image of the maker, we labor in vain, whether we are plumbers, garbage collectors, taxi drivers, or CEOs, we are called by the great artists to co-create. The artist calls us little artists to co-create, to share in the heavenly breaking in to the broken earth. To be a kingdom-oriented church means to live out for the sake of the common good, to love our neighbors. It means to pursue justice and make everything that is wrong right. It means to steward well that which God has given us to use, our gifts and our resources. And it means to bring beauty and use our imagination as creative agents in this world. And I believe when we do that by the power of the Spirit, we are a kingdom people, pulling a little bit of heaven down to earth. I'd love to invite you to stand as we come to the table and invite Fra and Lucas up to lead us.
I'd love to do two things before we come to the table today, and we do this every week. This is the table of Jesus, bread and wine. The wine is actually juice, and the bread is actually gluten-free. So hopefully that means that we can all celebrate together, and you're all welcome at this table. Nobody will stop you from coming to this table. You're welcome at this table. It's Jesus' table. If you want to be with Jesus today, he's at this table waiting for you. It's an open table for one and all. And at this table, we get to taste of the story we've been talking about, the grace that we've been talking about, the love that we've been talking about, the possibility that we've been talking about, that God is here and God is near. In fact, he's so near that he is in the story of Jesus come for us and given for us. And at the end of that passage in Revelation 21, where I talk, it says the one on the throne said, see, I am making all things new. That big vision of where this is all going, the restored heaven and earth coming together as one and, and God's creation the way it should be. A few verses on, it says this, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. And those who conquer will inherit these things, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And so that, I want to pray for some people in the room before we come to the table. If you're thirsty this morning because you have not tasted of the kingdom of God, if the empire has rubbed up against you, if your injustice has visited your home, if the enemy has stolen from you, if there are things in your life or your work life or people that you love's lives that are broken and need restored, I want to pray for you right now. Maybe you would join with me as we pray for those people that they would have a taste of water from the spring of life. So let's pray. Lord, I just thank you today that you have invited us into your story and that your story is going somewhere good and this world is being remade slowly but surely and yet along the way there are cuts and bruises and challenges and many hells to live through. And Lord, I just pray now for those in the room today that are feeling a need of your kingdom to come in their lives, a touch of heaven, some salt in their lives, a voice to say that it will all be good, that it will all be okay. And so we pray as a community this morning for them. And we declare with faith in the name of Jesus that everything will be okay. That everything wrong will be made right. And we bless them in the name of Jesus. Lord, may you give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life to every thirsting soul in this room. And we extend it as well to our city to our communities, to those in whom we have relationship, Lord. Would you come like a mighty river 
and rule through our towns and our villages and bring your kingdom. May we be a people that burn with that prayer on our lips. Your kingdom come, Lord. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That we would not be people who settle, but that we would be people that have had a drink from the well of life and we go out with water of life to thirsting souls. And Lord, I pray to you this morning for those who have been given much or even given little, that you would help us creatively figure out how to be good stewards, how to be good neighbors, how to be good artists, how to be creative and imaginative for the sake of your kingdom. Pray in Jesus' name, Lord, that you would activate and mobilize us and the things that are in our hands for the sake of your kingdom, Lord. And we do all this knowing that it is simply not the way we earn your love, but because we are loved and we revel in grace today that we are beloved and that we get to be part of this story. So if we come to the table, Lord, we come tasting of grace and we pray that that grace would permeate us to a point that we would be sent out, inspired to live and bring the kingdom to our world. In Jesus' name. people will still come forward and take the bread and wine. I'd love us just to just sit tight for just a minute longer and um, I just want to encourage you if, you, if you'd love prayer today about anything that's been mentioned, I just want you to know that that's definitely wonderfully put out. Any of us who look like we belong here <laughs> would be more than happy to pray with you today, speak with you. And if you're inspired or you've even got questions about anything we've talked about, we're also happy to talk about that and discuss that and wrestle with that and all of those things. But I'd love us just, just, to, take a, just to take a moment before we rush on. There's something powerful about prayer. And this is not <laughs> me jumping into another sermon on prayer. Prayer is connected. So some of you might, that might be the thing that's in your hands. You're a prayer. You're an interceder. And the song we've been singing is an intercessionally song. It's the Lord's Prayer in song form. And so as a community, I believe in prayer. I believe in intercession. Of I believe in contemplative prayer. I love contemplative prayer and reflective prayer. But I also believe that we can pray and intercede. And mysteriously, I don't know how that works. So I'd love us just, I'm not hyping anything up here. I just want us to simply, maybe quietly, sing this again just through the sections and Fra's going to lead us maybe we could pray the song would we do that and Fra just lead us again in these, in these words and let's pray collectively as a community Lord would you accept our prayers this morning and our longings that this world be made right whole healed and that our neighbors would flourish that our families would flourish that our children would flourish that our marriages would flourish that our government would flourish that our world would flourish we pray that Lord and we pray it in the name of Jesus may your kingdom come
sing this, let's pray this, Lord. Come. Come, Lord. Come, we pray.